Hebrews 13, verses 7 through 17. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 16 for our sermon today. And it's entitled, New Covenant Sacrifices. Hear the word of God. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent or tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually up, offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Verses 7, 8, and 9 are connected as follows. Verse 7 reminds the hearers that they once had pastors who accurately preached the word of God to them. Those leaders' lives matched their teaching, and so they were worthy of imitation in the faith. Verse 8 defines that faith. It is the unchanging Christ. This leads in verse 9 to a warning against leaving that faithful doctrine for what is called diverse and strange teaching. These were the doctrines of contemporary Judaism. Their teaching was diverse or various because it varied from the truth as it is in Jesus. And it was strange because it was foreign and incompatible with the truth. It was rooted in a misunderstanding of the perfection and finality of the work of Jesus Christ. Specifically, these strange teachings proposed that eating in the old covenant way was effective for their spiritual lives. They didn't understand that the Old Testament way of sacrificing and foods was fulfilled in Christ and so gone forever. This was apparently a real danger in the mind of the preacher because he warns his hearers not to be led away by these things. They had a secure standing, he has taught them, so they should be careful not to be swept away from it, as the words can be translated. Verses 7 and 9 parallel each other. In verse 7, the people are told to remember and imitate their former leaders who taught the word of God. In verse 9, they are told not to be led away by strange teachers with a message inconsistent with that earlier word. In verse 7, the truth led to an outcome of victory. In verse 9, the practice of these false teachings did not benefit those who kept them. 
So let me summarize and clarify the main point of difference between the two teachings as found in verses 9 through 16. These verses contrast eating and sacrificing in an Old Covenant way with eating and sacrificing in a New Covenant way. Let me say that again. These verses contrast eating and sacrificing in an Old Covenant way with eating and sacrificing in a New Covenant way. So there is a comparison between foods and altars and sacrifices. There is a way to do all of those things without Jesus and a way to do them in Jesus. To do them in the old way is not beneficial. To do them in the new way leads to spiritual strength, a lasting city, and pleasing God. Here again, in this passage, as so often in the book, we are taught that Jesus fulfills all the types and shadows of the Old Covenant, even including its foods and sacrifices. So they are gone, but also replaced by the reality those things foreshadowed, which is the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. All the Old Testament points to Christ, even Old Covenant eating points to him. So let's see first the truth that Christ is our sustenance. Christ is our sustenance or food. This is found in verses 9 and 10. Now by way of background, it's helpful to understand that first century Judaism taught that the heart could be strengthened by foods. Just as this verse intimates, they believed that the heart could be strengthened by food. Now, the writer to the Hebrews obviously argues against this, but contemporary Judaism clearly believed it, and they did this in two ways. First, they taught that the portions of the sacrifices which were meant to be eaten by the priests and people were holy gifts from God, and so they benefited their souls. Observance of the sacrificial meals supported them with grace, they said, and rather automatically. But secondly, they believed that their normal eating spiritually strengthened their hearts. They based this on Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15, which says this, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock, and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. First century Judaism didn't mean joyful eating strengthened them in a merely physical or psychological way. Who wouldn't agree with that? No, they always pronounced this blessing over every meal, and it was sanctified by these verses in the psalm, they thought, so that when pure foods were eaten to God in joy and thanksgiving, grace came to the heart. Their souls were spiritually strengthened by food, they said. But all of this is denied by the inspired preacher in verse 9. Those who devote themselves to food are not benefited, says the word of God. The only way for the heart to be spiritually strengthened is by taking in the grace found in Jesus Christ. Now the Old Covenant foods once had a role to play. They pointed toward Christ. But they have been replaced by the reality of his person and work. 
So today, true worshipers of God are stabilized by eating from a new altar, a new sacrifice, who is Jesus. See verse 10 that declares that we now have the right to eat at an altar with the sacrifice that they don't have. Jesus Christ is the food on this altar. He is the sacrifice that if any man eats, he will live. He will be strengthened in grace. Now that language may sound very strange to your ear. But Jesus himself taught this same truth in John chapter 6. He said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. John 6.51 This confused his hearers. So he went on and, from their perspective, made it worse. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. In other words, he is real food and genuine drink. Well, how does one do this? What is he talking about? Jesus explains in John 6.35, that whoever comes to him will not hunger, and whoever believes in him will not thirst. He means that coming to him in faith is eating his flesh. Believing in him is drinking his blood. Faith takes hold of Jesus Christ in his sacrificial work and takes him for its own. Faith eats and drinks Christ, and so a man, a woman, is strengthened with grace. Christians have an altar, the sacrificial crosswork of Christ, and we are permitted and even commanded to feed on this offering. If we partake of his work by faith, our hearts are strengthened with grace. The Old Testament sacrifices prefigured Christ, the Lamb of God, and eating them brought a kind of ceremonial blessing. But with Christ's work on the altar of the cross, these are all fulfilled. And now real spiritual health comes from eating and drinking that sacrifice. So faith exercised toward Christ strengthens the heart with grace. Brothers and sisters, eat the crucified Christ's body and drink his blood by believing on him, by thoroughly understanding who he was and what he did by accepting that as true and by trusting yourself to his cross work. And you will find him to be your sacrificial food, your sacrificial sustenance. He will be your food indeed. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ is our Passover feast. He is our spiritual food. But Christ is not only our food, our sustenance, but he is also, according to verses 10 and 12, our sacrifice. So next, Christ is our sacrifice. As we have just shown, Christ in his death on the cross became our altar and our sacrifice. In these verses, his sacrifice is compared to the Old Testament Day of Atonement. In that event, the sacrifices for sin were not eaten, 
but were burned outside the Israelite camp or later outside the city of Jerusalem. The altar, the initial sacrifice, and the blood of the animals were inside in the so-called holy places of the encampment. But then the bodies were taken outside to be fully burnt. This showed the unholiness of the sin they represented. Remember, this particular offering was a sacrifice for sin. Inside the tabernacle and camp, or city, things were holy. Outside was thought to be the unholy ground. So the offering representing sin was sent outside. Just as criminals were crucified outside the city, so the sin sacrifice was also completed outside the camp. Jesus fulfilled this Old Covenant type. He suffered death on a hill outside the city walls, and he was sacrificed there to show that he bore the sins of the people, that he bore the curse of sin. The Old Testament sacrifice only made a ceremonial removal of sins, but he, the New Covenant sacrifice, actually sanctified the people by his death. His life was a ransom for many, making full payment to the justice of God. By this he accomplished our sanctification, meaning that he set us apart so that we can approach God. And that freedom means that we can now follow Christ and offer sacrifices to God of our own. And this is our th third point from verses 13 to 16. Through Christ we offer sacrifice. So, Christ is our food, Christ is our sacrifice, and now through Christ we offer sacrifices. Notice that these two truths lead to a practical therefore. In verse 13, therefore let us go. These are actions required of us, and this is the offering of new covenant sacrifices. Now we do this in three ways according to the text, but before we look at these three ways, let me preface this with three other important points. First of all, please don't overlook the fact that these are sacrifices. That means they will cost you something to perform. The Old Testament offering of a lamb or a goat or a bull wasn't free. It was an expense for the worshiper. They lost the animal. Now, admittedly, they gained something through their giving, but we are dealing with loss when we talk about doing these three things. Secondly, it's important to notice that these sacrifices are more spiritual, more directly spiritual, than their Old Testament counterparts. They are offered by worshipers who are in Christ. Most of the worshipers in the Old Testament, of course, were only physically of Abraham, and they were not in Christ in any sense. Those who are in Christ do these three things through him, according to verse 15. The Old Covenant offerings aimed for a moral or spiritual heart, but they were often done without one. But the New Covenant sacrifices, being less symbolic, are more directly heart religion. Thirdly, these sacrifices show that New Testament priests worship God in all of life. Now, many of you know that I don't really like that phrase because I think it's usually misunderstood 
and misapplied, and rather badly, in fact. It's often used to explain why, why people don't feel the need to attend public worship, and it also tends to exalt the individual and his worship over the gathering and worship of the body of Christ. Now, in the Bible, the overwhelming number of calls to worship God are corporate. But there is a small strand of teaching in the New Testament that says that in our everyday lives, we individually offer the sacrifices of worship to God. And these verses in Hebrews 13 are among them. So, what are the three categories of sacrifice that Christ in the New Covenant calls us to? Well, first, in verses 13 and 14, is the sacrifice of ourselves. The sacrifice of ourselves. We see this beginning in verse 13 where it says, Therefore let us go to him, him, the one who went outside the camp. This is a call to follow Christ. We are to draw near to him. This is a call to discipleship, to imitate him in leaving everything to follow the call of God, to take up our cross in imitation of his cross-bearing. You see, those who truly place their trust in Christ give up their lives. They sacrifice themselves to save themselves. Placing our faith in Christ is doing what he said it was, losing our life for his sake. But we do it in order to save it. Now, none of this earns our salvation, but it does prove the reality of our faith. When Christ went outside the camp, reproach came upon him. Jesus didn't think there was any safety in either the Jewish or Roman world or religions. He went into the realm they considered unholy, but that he, by his perfect life and death, was making holy. In all of this, he was completing the example set by Moses. Do you remember the story? After Israel committed idolatry through the golden calf at Sinai, God was rightly angry with them. He refused to be in their midst. He had laid out, you may recall, the organization of the tribes. They all had a special place. Uh, there was an order, uh, almost like a military one. And in the middle of the various tribes was to be the tabernacle. It was to be carried and set up. But now... God refused to be in their midst. He was rightly angry with them. So Moses took the tent of meeting, and according to Exodus 33, he pitched it, quote, outside the camp, far off from the camp. And if anyone wanted to seek the Lord, he could not be found in the camp, but they had to find God outside the camp. And so it was with Jesus. God was not to be found in the corruptions of the Old Testament religion by the Jewish teachers of the day. God was to be found outside the city, in the tent that is Jesus Christ. And so we are called here to go to him. We are called to accept his reproach. This means we must be willing to sacrifice our reputations, even to the point of being called fools for Christ's sake. We must leave the city of man and go to the city of God. We have no lasting city here. There is no wisdom or safety 
in giving ourselves to this perishing and wicked world. The earthly Jerusalem or the United States or any human land is not holy, but the heavenly Jerusalem is holy. And that is our goal. That is our homeland. And that, praise God, is our destiny. So to gain everything, we sacrifice ourselves to God through Christ. The second sacrifice following the the sacrifice of ourselves is the sacrifice of praise. This is found in verse 15. The second sacrifice we give to God as new covenant priests is that of continual praise. Now in the Old Testament, there were many thanksgiving offerings. They were meant to be joyful sacrifices, showing appreciation to God for his good gifts. They were supposed to be outward performances that reflected a genuinely grateful heart. New Testament believers are now enabled and required to thank and praise God. And in this way, our new covenant sacrifices fulfill the Old Testament patterns. Now, of course, they don't fulfill them on their own. This is only possible because we are in Christ by faith. And so what we do toward God is done, again, verse 15, through Christ. Do you remember back in chapter 2, verse 12, Christ is described as the one who tells of God's name to his brothers and sings God's praise. His sacrifice not only gives us access to God so that we can safely praise him, but he also sets an example for us. He leads us in worship. And we follow him. And so we fulfill the old covenant thank offerings. Notice that in this verse, this is to be a constant activity. Like prayer, it is to be done continually or regularly. Praise to God is to be a steady and significant part of our lives. But you may be thinking, wait a minute, if I really do that, there are other things I'm not going to get around to. I mean, there's only so much time in the day. And you are right. Remember, this is called a sacrifice. To consistently praise God throughout your life, to stop and take the time to be aware and thankful to God, to sing praises, to voice thanksgiving in prayer or in other ways, it means it will cost you something. The third sacrifice listed in our text is the sacrifice of good works, verse 16. This final verse informs us that words alone are not a sufficient religion or worship or sacrifice. As James tells us, part of true religion before God the Father is this, to help widows and orphans in their distress. Our hearts and mouths must be accompanied with loving actions. We are called here to do good and to share. The intended sacrifices of our inner man must become real. They must be actualized. Again, this is a sacrifice that will cost us something. Is all of your time and all of your good works spent on yourself or immediate family? Do you possibly not share with others because it would take away money from yourself? Do you give to others but only when it's out of what you perceive to be your excess? Well, this verse is a call to make the sacrifice. Why? Why would you do this? Well, because it helps those in need. 
It also assures you of your standing with God. But the emphasis here is that it pleases God the Father. Here are three finishing uses. First, let me reinforce this thought that we should not drain the word sacrifice of its cost. Following Christ, praising Him and doing good will cost you something. Love cares for one another, even at the loss of our own things. But remember, he who loses his life for Christ's sake finds it. Secondly, here we are reminded that Jesus Christ truly fulfills all the Old Testament types and shadows, and we participate in that. What a privilege to be fellow workers with Christ in these things. Truly the end of the ages has come upon us, and we experience this. Don't underestimate this blessing of, in some mysterious way, being co-workers with God. Surely that's a phrase or a title we would never take to ourselves, but it is a scriptural one. And so we can safely use it. Thirdly, and most importantly, this passage is a reminder that we must not leave Christ for any other teaching. Because if we do, all is lost. All is lost. He is all the sustenance and all the sacrifice you need to be right with God. So I call upon you to feast on him by faith and on him alone for salvation.